If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com slash silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. Without the First World War, I think it's very likely that the Ottomans would have continued a process of reform and adaptation that would have allowed their their empire to have survived as a kind of Turco-Arab state. That was Eugene Rogan discussing the downfall of the Ottoman Empire. But that idea of leaving your own mark alongside Shakespeare's is is a very um, understandable, very widespread cultural response to spaces connected with, with great people. And that was Paul Edmondson describing reactions to William Shakespeare. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of March 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Eugene L. Rogan, a historian of the Middle East based at the University of Oxford. His latest book, published just last week, is The Fall of the Ottomans, The Great War in the Middle East, 1914-1920, to which charts one of the lesser-known episodes of the First World War. We sent our website editor, Emma McFarnan, to Oxford to meet Eugene and discuss this pivotal moment in the history of the Middle East. So your new book, The Fall of the Ottomans, uh, explores the involvement of the Ottoman Empire in the First World War. Now, for those of our readers uh, and listeners who aren't familiar, can you remind us um, when did the Ottoman Empire become involved in the First World War and, and why? The Ottoman Empire was the unwilling ally in the Great War. It was drawn into the First World War by its own imperative to try and conclude an alliance to protect Ottoman territory from Russian ambitions. Russia had long sought to annex both the strategic straits linking the Black Sea to the Mediterranean and for cultural reasons, the Ottoman capital, Istanbul, ancient Byzantium, which as the seat of the Eastern Orthodox Church, Russia had always sought to revive as a center of Orthodox Christianity 
and redeem it after centuries of Islamic rule. So knowing that Russia posed an existential threat, the Ottomans believed it essential that they conclude an alliance with a European power who might protect them from Russian ambitions. Basically, that ruled out France or Britain, both of whom were Russia's allies. And so the Ottomans were forced to turn to Germany, a country that had no territorial ambitions in the Ottoman Empire, no colonial history with the region, and whose Kaiser, Wilhelm II, had declared Germany the eternal friends of the Muslim people and the Ottoman Empire in particular. Uh, once they concluded an alliance with Germany, the Ottomans were drawn into a fateful set of events that by November of 1914 saw them at war with the Entente powers and a full and engaged party in the Great War. The Ottoman Empire famously defeated the Allies at Gallipoli in 1915. Was the Ottoman Empire stronger than the Allies had anticipated? The Ottomans proved remarkably tenacious. In the course of the First World War, they dealt the Allies' defeats, not just in Gallipoli, but in Mesopotamia, where the Ottoman army accepted the surrender of the largest British force to surrender in history until the fall of Singapore in the Second World War. It was to be the largest number of British troops to, uh, to surrender, 13,000. They also defeated the British in two battles in Gaza and managed to fight a war for the full four years of the Great War, when I think most analysts would have expected the Ottomans to have collapsed at the first salvos of the war. The tenacity of the Ottomans, on the one hand, stems from the fact they were defending their territory against foreign invaders. And so I think particularly for Ottoman Turks in the army, there, there was a very genuine sense that they were preserving their land against a very aggressive foreign occupier. That was certainly the case in Gallipoli. But I also think it reflects the nature of industrial warfare. The First World War was a conflict like no other before, in which artillery and machine guns really set the terms in which war would be fought. And by those terms, you know, technology favored the defenders. It was the attackers who got out of their trenches and ran across the open land of no man's land, who were cut down by the machine guns, who were stopped by the barbed wire, who were decimated by the artillery. And in the sense that the Ottomans were defending their territory against outside attack, they did have the advantage. I think the third thing was that the Ottomans were remarkably good at strategic retreats. When they suffered a, a battlefield loss, the Ottomans managed time and time again to extract their soldiers and their guns uh, and keep their armies intact to fight another day. And in this way, after suffering a string of defeats in the Mesopotamian front, for instance, the Ottomans were able finally to draw a line in the defense of Baghdad, turn the tide against the occupying or the invading British army and drive them back to the ultimately, you know, ter terrible siege of Kotelamara where the British surrendered in, uh, in 1916. So I think for these three reasons, defending their own territory, the nature of industrial war that favored the defenders, and the success the Ottomans showed at withdrawing their soldiers and their artillery when they faced a reversal in the battlefield, all served to keep the Ottomans in the war for the full four years of World War I. And given that you just said they had the advantage that they were defending, how, how did they come to be defeated in the end, and, and, and what were the immediate consequences? Well, the Ottomans had to defend a vast territory with over 12,000 kilometers of borders. And for the first time in their six centuries of history, the Ottomans were up against the, uh, the combined forces of the greatest powers of the day. Britain, France, and Russia were pressing the Ottomans at several points at one time. It was extremely difficult to maintain a kind of cohesive war plan when faced with so many challenges. The Russians had effectively knocked the Ottomans out of the Caucasus front in the opening weeks of the war. And the Ottomans had suffered a very high level of attrition in defending Gallipoli or in trying to retain Baghdad. By the time the final Allied breakthrough came on the Palestine front in the autumn of 1917, 
Um, you know, the Ottomans really had seen their ability to mobilize troops and resources strain to the breaking point. They'd been fighting for three years. Their ability to conscript new troops meant that they were drawing on either very young men, 15, 14, 16, or very old men in their 60s and 70s. It meant that the agricultural base of the Ottoman Empire had been totally undermined after three years of war, and that the civilian population had been decimated by famine and disease. There was no spare capacity to tax people to raise the money for maintaining the war. And I think that the ability to continue the war was being eroded dramatically. By the time Jerusalem falls to the British in December of 1917, the Ottomans were really a very weakened force. The remarkable thing is that in spite of that, they were able to maintain their defense of their Arab territories until the following October, when with the final breakthrough in the Palestine front, the Allies descend on Damascus and drive the Ottomans out of the Arab lands once and for all. And um, you say in your book that the Ottoman Empire's involvement in the First World War laid the foundations for conflicts in the Middle East that continue today. How, how is that? Much of the modern Middle East, right up until the frontiers of Egypt, was ruled as a direct part of the Ottoman Empire. That meant that places like Baghdad or Basra or Damascus or Aleppo or Beirut or Mecca and Medina, each sat as the seat of a provincial governor answerable to the central Ottoman government in Istanbul. It was a multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-national empire, which had been the kind of dominant form of statecraft in the Islamic world right up until the 20th century. With the fall of the Ottoman Empire, and given the ambitions of European imperial states to secure key territory, to expand their empires after the First World War, the Middle East passed from this kind of multinational imperial reality into the modern nation-state system that we know today. The frontiers that were imposed by the victorious powers after the First World War have proved very enduring, but so too have the conflicts that were engendered by those boundaries. The most obvious are the fact that there was not a Kurdish state created to satisfy the national and cultural aspirations of Kurds who were divided between the modern states of Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Turkey. You could point to conflicts between the Kurds and their host countries right across the 20th century, and it's only really in the 1990s that in Iraqi Kurdistan, the beginnings of a distinct political existence for the Kurds took shape, which, though still part of the modern state of Iraq, has created a kind of focus for Kurdish cultural and political aspirations that might well challenge the frontiers established after the First World War. I think that if you were to look at Lebanon, you would see a country that emerged as part of the post-war settlement, contested by Syrians in 1919-1920, occupied by Syria in 1976 uh, after the outbreak of the Lebanese Civil War, leading to 30 years of Syrian domination of Lebanon, that the uncomfortable political system put in place by the French of a kind of Christian-dominated polity in a land where demography meant that Muslims would soon outnumber Christians, all lay the foundations for a very unstable Lebanese republic that kind of lives on a knife's edge even as we speak. But it's the Palestine-Israel conflict that was to prove the ultimate failure of the post-war partitions. Britain's attempt to create a Jewish national home that would not prejudice the rights and interests of the non-Jewish inhabitants of the land was impossible to realize. And we see in the creation of the State of Israel in 1948, the creation of the Palestinian refugee problem as a consequence of the 1948 war, and the unresolved differences between the Israelis and Palestinians that run down to the present day, a source of instability not just in Israel and Palestine, but for the region as a whole. And of course, we've seen how Middle Eastern turbulence has come to upset the stability of Europe and North America in Islamically inspired terrorist movements who see 
in the injustice done to the Palestinians, an ongoing cause for Muslims to fight against Western hegemony in their part of the world. So, I mean, these are but examples of the longer-term instability that came about a process of building states out of Ottoman territory where the goal was less to ensure the stability of the post-war Middle East and more to think about how to expand the European imperial sort of grandeur as a reward for the fighting that the British and French endured in the First World War. Had they wanted the stable region, you can't help but think they would have gone about things in a very different way. That's really interesting. And how, how different do you think things could or would have been if, say, the Ottoman Empire hadn't been defeated? I mean, how, I know it's, looking, it's hard to say, but how do you imagine the chips might have fallen if... Oh, it's always fun to enter into <laughs> counterfactual history and to consider how the Middle East would have looked had the Ottomans not entered the war. Or had they not lost the war? Mm. And I think the obvious differences that we could imagine are, one, there would have been no Balfour Declaration. And so there would never have been a Jewish national home in Palestine. There would never have been a state of Israel. With all that that implies for the despair of post-Second World War II Jewry after the Holocaust who have had no solution for the Jewish people to address the magnitude of their Second World War horror, but there would not have been an Arab-Israeli conflict either, with all of the attendant horrors that that has imposed on a region that has been destabilized by the incompatible Jewish and Arab nationalisms fighting over Palestine. It... If the Ottomans had won the war, that is to say if Germany had won the war, it seems very likely that Britain's imperial presence in the Middle East and France's imperial presence in the region would have been severely diminished. And that would have left the Ottoman Empire more firmly in control of the Arab world. And one can imagine a situation where the Ottomans would have replaced the British as the dominant influence in the Persian Gulf, which would have seen Istanbul become the ultimate oil capital instead of Riyadh or Abu Dhabi or Kuwait. So what the Ottoman Empire as the weak man of Europe might have looked like as the world's richest oil state, holding territories ranging from Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, the Emirates, and, uh, and Iraq, is of course difficult to contemplate. But Yes, we would have seen oil sultans instead of oil sheikhs. Just, I wanted to pick up on another thing you said in your book, that um, the First World War and the draconian peace terms at Versailles uh, precipitated the fall of the Ottoman Empire. I found that really interesting. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, the standard wisdom is that the Ottomans fell when they were defeated by the Allies in the First World War. And I think it's worth remembering that the Ottomans had lost many wars in the two centuries before the Great War and had always been able to negotiate a settlement which allowed the survival of their state. The Ottomans were faced with the most draconian settlement that their empire had ever known in the Treaty of Sèvres. It reduced the Ottoman empire to, you know, basically those territories of Anatolia or modern Turkey that no one else laid claim to, out of what we now know as modern Turkey, was to be carved an Armenian state in the northeastern corner of Anatolia. To the south of Armenia was to be a Kurdish state. To the west of that territory, land was ceded to France. Next to the French territory, to Italy next to the Italian territory. Whole swaths of Western Anatolia were gifted to Greece. It was in signing this draconian settlement that the Ottoman government in Istanbul lost the loyalty of key nationalists who believed that in accepting this partition, not just of the Arab territories of the Ottoman Empire, which were lost to them through the Treaty of Sèvres, but of the 
Turkish heartland of Anatolia that the Ottoman Sultan and his government had actually betrayed the Turkish people. And it's this which inspires Mustafa Kemal, the hero of Gallipoli, the future Ataturk, to lead a movement based in Ankara, based around a national pact which called for the unification of the Turkish territories of Anatolia into an Ottoman state that um, essentially saw them go to war not just against the enemies occupying Anatolia, but against the Sultan and his government as well. And when Mustafa Kemal's movement emerges victorious from three years of war, defeating the French, the Armenians, and the Greeks, they then had the mandate to renegotiate terms with the victorious allies in the Treaty of Lausanne. And before setting off to sign that treaty, it is by decree of the new Turkish government that the Sultanate is abolished. The Ottoman family is expelled from the country. It is the fall of the Ottomans, not because of the terms uh, of, of war, but terms of peace. And it was the draconian peace treaty of Sevres that inspired the nationalist movement not just to fight a war to liberate Turkish territory, but to overturn the government that they'd all, at one time in their lives, sworn allegiance to, that of the Ottoman Empire. It was to be replaced by the Turkish Republic, which is the modern state of Turkey as we know it now. So were the terms, you feel, unduly harsh? If you look at the Paris Peace Conference and the treaties that emerged from it, they were, without exception, harsh on all of the defeated parties. The First World War saw the breakup not just of the Ottoman Empire, but of the Russian and the Austro-Hungarian and the German empires. And in drafting treaties, you know, Austria was cut down to a fraction of its former size. Uh, Germany was demilitarized and saddled with a kind of war uh, repayments that would cripple its economy ever more. It lost territory, obviously, Alsace and Lorraine, uh, other territories to the east of Germany and all of its external possessions. Um, Bulgaria referred to its peace uh, as the, the second great catastrophe, the first having been Bulgarian defeat in the Second Balkan War. So I think every defeated country that emerged in the First World War viewed the terms it was dealt in Paris as extraordinarily harsh and draconian, and that in these harsh terms uh, lay the sources of future conflicts. Here are the roots of the Second World War. For the Ottomans, you know, as I said, the, the terms of the war made for an unviable Ottoman successor state in the eyes of Turkish nationalists. And so they're, in their bid to make a viable state, the Turks actually came back to the victorious powers with a settlement that they could live with and so interestingly, of, of all the defeated parties from the First World War, it was the Turks who remained neutral in the Second World War and were not destabilized or drawn into a conflict that, in the eyes of many, was seen as an attempt to adjust what was flawed and overly draconian, draconian in the Paris peace terms of, after the First World War. I understand there were a number of factors that contributed to the fall of the Ottoman Empire, but when you're line them all up, I suppose. How, how significant was the First World War? Was it the overriding reason that the Ottoman Empire collapsed or was it just one of many? The First World War played a decisive effect on forcing the collapse of the centuries-old Ottoman Empire. Without the First World War, I think it's very likely that the Ottomans would have continued a process of reform and adaptation that would have allowed their, their empire to have survived as a kind of Turco-Arab state. The experience of the Young Turks in government since 1908 had demonstrated to the Young Turk rulers that they, their future lay in the Muslim world. And they were convinced that the only way to prevent the Arab world from succumbing to nationalism and going through a kind of balkanization process where nationalist movements would challenge Ottoman rule and lead to wars of independence that would destabilize the territory, that the Ottomans had to centralize their rule over the Arab provinces. They did so by carrots. 
and by sticks. The carrots were investments by the Ottoman authorities, the involvement of Arabs in institutions of government like the Ottoman parliament. The sticks were the application of you know, the terms of conscription and taxation in a very rigorous way, which were upheld by law. If you didn't meet your commitments to the states, you'd be in jail. This made the Ottomans some supporters and many enemies. But I think that the Ottomans could have managed their enemies and preserved their state as a kind of dual monarchy, ruling over Turks and Arabs, if only because for so many people in the Arab world, after four centuries of Ottoman rule, it was very difficult to imagine exiting the Ottoman Empire. And uh, the Ottomans left little scope for people to meet and discuss political ideas or seditious ideas in liberty. Through such means, I think the Ottomans could have preserved themselves well into the 20th century as a, as a kind of joint Turkish-Arab state. But um, the First World War obviously you know, put paid to that. I, I think the, the critical point is that for those who would see the Ottomans as a sick man of Europe whose end was inevitable, I would argue no. The end of the Ottomans really came around as a direct consequence of war. And that um, the experience of the Ottomans in the last two or three decades of the empire's history was one of adapting and surviving in a way which could very well have continued well into the 20th century. And going back to your book um, specifically, the, I understand it's written from the perspective of soldiers who fought on, on both sides of the Ottoman frontier. Um, how did you go about researching the book and, and how long did it take you? But I've been working on the First World War for quite some time now, and aspects of the war have been dealt with in two of my previous books. So I didn't come to the subject as a stranger. And I have over the years been collecting diaries in Arabic and in Turkish of the war years and the experiences of Ottoman soldiers or civilians who lived through these times. So I'd always been quite fascinated by the First World War. It's one of those major turning points in 20th century Arab history the end of the Ottoman era and the beginning of the, the state system and of the imperial experience in, in the Middle East. In doing my research, though, I made a conscious decision to try and keep the focus of the work as much as possible from the perspective of the soldiers who fought in the war. There are enough studies from the top down, from the commander's perspective. And what really interested me were the common features of soldiers' experiences on both sides of the trenches. The more you read into the diaries of Arabs and Turks at the time, the more you see that they, they experienced the war in such analogous ways to British, French, Anzac troops who were there as well. Little things. Um, I'm struck how many soldiers on both sides of the trenches captured their experiences in poetry. Obviously, in Britain, there's been a long-running fascination with the war poets, and there are a number of great war poets. Here, I'm talking less about great poetry than the way in which, for soldiers who had a certain amount of education, the experience of the war so transcended anything they'd ever known before that maybe they found simple prose too crude, a way to try and capture the enormity of their experiences. And so, for many of them, Poetry was a more effective or eloquent or accurate medium to capture those experiences. Very striking. And like I said, not all of it good. Some of it actually quite awful. But <laughs> how interesting to see Turks, Arabs, Britons, Aussies, you know, writing eulogies of their horses or condemning the plagues of flies or capturing the horror of sleeping with the dead or what it means to see comrades shattered by shellfire. They all did it. They all lived it, they experienced it, and they wrote about it in ways that were so similar. Now, the other thing I was struck by was there had been a real propaganda effort that had succeeded in engendering hatred between the British and the French, the Australians and the New Zealanders, and the Germans. They all wanted to go and fight the Bush. 
they all had horror stories. They all talked about the Germans in very dehumanizing ways. But they went to the Ottoman front with no preconceived hatred of the Turks. These were young men thrown into a battlefield that they were all quite surprised to be in. They all assumed they were going off to Europe to fight the Bosch. Instead, they got to, you know, diverted to go and fight the Turks. They didn't hate the Turks. They had no reason to. And though they fought like hell, at every opportunity where they could fraternize, they did so with a kind of generosity that surprised soldiers on both sides. And I've got accounts from both Turkish and British soldiers about how they could hear each other's trenches. Sometimes the trenches would be only 30 or 50 yards away. And that occasionally they would throw a pack of cigarettes across the lines. Or the Turks would throw cigarettes. The, the Brits would throw pots of jam. And this one Turkish soldier reflected on how when they do these exchanges... It was always done with goodwill. Nobody ever took the opportunity to put a booby trap in there or to mingle dirt with the jam or to follow up a gift with a hand grenade. It wasn't like that. And even when they left in Gallipoli, the British soldiers evacuated in, in December or in January, left notes behind saying they respected the Turks as good fighters. This had been a lousy place to fight and they hoped they'd get another chance to have another scrap to like settle scores. <laughs> And, and I know that, um, that Turkish soldiers picked these letters up and they, yeah. you know, the degree to which they wanted another scrap after having successfully defeated and driven the British away, I can't tell you. But there was something quite touching about these exchanges between soldiers who had fought to kill each other without ever hating each other. And I think you capture that much better by reading the diaries and the accounts of these soldiers than anything that would come from the top down. It's very hard to find expressions of anger or animosity towards the Turks Whereas I did come across lots of accounts of, of sympathy, even of uh, examples of Turks protecting British soldiers. There, there were Turkish soldiers brought to the British medics tents by the Britons whose lives these Turks had saved. And what motivates a Turk to take a bullet in the arm and a leg to try and save a man stuck between lines, it's hard to know. But the British medics always noted, you know, that they showed every kindness they could to these Turks so long as it stayed, they stayed in their hands in the hospital tent. Um, yeah, there was no real hatred there. And so I think more grounds for compassion as a result. And that brings me quite nicely to my next question about... Um, you said in your book that the Ottoman involvement and in the, in, in the frontier um, is one of the least understood. Why do you think that is? I think the Ottoman front is difficult to approach. One, because of the language barrier. For Western researchers, to read Turkish and Arabic is just a hindrance. They're tough languages, and that difficulty is compounded by the way in which the Turkish authorities act as gatekeepers over their military archives. I think the war experience remains sensitive. I think the conduct of the Armenian genocide, the abuse of prisoners of war, uh, you know, there, there is a dark side to the Ottoman front that remains sensitive and controversial. And as a result, the terms under which researchers get access to the military archives in Ankara are very, very restrictive. And, you know, you, you're not allowed to reproduce the documents, um, you have to read on site. So for those who are not native speakers or readers of these languages, the amount of material you can get through is really quite restricted. So, you know, I think that there are concrete reasons why it has been difficult for scholars to match the degree of material we have that's shed light on, you know, the Austrian front, the German front, French, British involvement in the war, Anzac involvement in the war. Um, and the other thing is, I think, for many of the Turkish uh, soldiers, whether they're Arabs or Turks, you know, literacy was very low. And so a lot of these men who served left few written records. And I think that's been a problem which has plagued historians of Indian soldiers' involvement in the war. You know, of all of the colonial uh, troops to serve in the First World War, the Indians were by far the most numerous. I think it's 1.3 or 1.4 million who served in total, and yet the documentation on their experience is so thin by comparison to that of other combatants. 
here again largely because literacy was so low among common soldiers. And uh, so we have so much less of their material. But it's, it's a constantly evolving situation. I think that there is far more interest in exploring the rest of the world in the First World War, and that researchers are uncovering sources that have proved highly revealing. I really hope that my book will encourage greater interest in the experience of uh, the Middle East in the First World War. I think that for many of us in the West, it's surprising to see just how many countries in the modern Middle East were drawn into the war. Literally every state of North Africa contributed soldiers to the war. There were battles fought in Libya, in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, in Israel, in Palestine, in Jordan, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Turkey, in Iran, right through Iraq. So even Yemen, the far east, you know, the far southern extremities of the Arabian Peninsula was a battlefield of the First World War. This is a huge part of the Middle East caught up in the war. And I don't think we factor that into our, our memory of the conflict. But it's my hope that the book will get translated and be made available in the Arab world and in Turkey, because for many in the Arab world, there simply isn't the historic memory of the First World War. It's a conflict they saw as somebody else's war. The Arabs drawn into the conflict did not fight in defense of their own territory. They were in Ottoman uniform, and they were going through a period of really questioning their relationship to the Ottoman Empire, largely as a result of the hardships of that war. So there aren't monuments in the cities of the Arab world remembering the tens of thousands of war dead, as you would find in any European city. Even in Turkey, it's really only in those areas where Turkish forces prevailed, such as Gallipoli, where you'll find a regular memorialization of the First World War, because for modern Turks, the war that really matters is the war of national independence fought by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, which leads to the emergence of the Turkish Republic. The First World War was seen as a catastrophic defeat of the old Ottoman Empire. And so it's less celebrated than the Turkish War of Independence. And um, I think in, in these ways, for us to restore historic memory of the significance of the First World War for the Arab world and for Turkey is an important contribution. But at the moment, there's only translations commissioned in, in Greek and in Spanish. So it's interesting to see what parts of the world the book will reach. I hope that we'll see it reach more. One final question I wanted to ask you is, um, what do you think is the relevance of the Ottoman Empire today? The Ottoman Empire stands as one of the great world cultures of modern history. From the time of the earliest Ottoman conquests in the 13th century until the ultimate demise of that empire, the Ottomans stood as the greatest Islamic empire of its age, with all that that implies of a distinct contribution to world culture. One need but go to the great cities of the Ottoman Empire and admire the architectural heritage, the great works of a master architect like Sinan, who left us with mosque complexes in all of the leading cities of the empire from Edirne down to Damascus, with some of his greatest works, uh, of course, in the capital Istanbul, Ottoman capital Istanbul. But as travelers, as map makers, as literati, as poets, as religious scholars, as historians, the Ottoman Turks made their contribution not just to Islamic culture, but to world culture. And I think that uh, for scholars of, uh, of this history, the relevance of the Ottoman Empire will transcend its mere geopolitical significance. And uh, I think we all uh, have a real uh, ambition to, to flag the ways in which um, the Ottomans stand as one of the great cultures of the Mediterranean world. That was Eugene L. Rogan. The Fall of the Ottomans, The Great War in the Middle East, 1914 to 1920, is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane and it will be published in the US next week by Basic Books. And we'll be running a review of the book in our April edition. Meanwhile, our March issue is currently on sale. 
In this month's magazine, we explore what life was like in Roman Britain. We discover how Henry VIII nearly had a seventh wife. And we show how fashion survived during the Second World War. You can pick up our March issue now in all good news agents and digitally. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Now let's rejoin Emma McFarnan for the latest history news. A coffin within a coffin, discovered next to Richard III's remains in Leicester, contained a woman, it has been revealed. The elderly woman may have died in 1250, more than two centuries before Richard, and possibly founded the friary, experts from the University of Leicester said. The lead coffin in a stone sarcophagus was found in the same car park as the king during a second excavation of the site. It was initially thought to contain a knight or head of the Grey Friars. The female was in one of ten graves discovered in the grounds of the medieval complex, including that of Richard III, six of which were left undisturbed. Those that were examined were all found to have female remains. Richard III will be reinterred at a service in Leicester Cathedral on the 26th of March. In other news, here at BBC History Magazine HQ, we're asking readers and listeners to nominate which figures in history they're most interested in at the moment. Whether it's someone you're reading about, the subject of a recent television or radio programme, or perhaps someone you're studying, we want to know. You can vote for anyone you like, providing they died more than 30 years ago, before the 1st of January 1985, and you can nominate up to three individuals. Once we've collected the data, we'll publish a list, based on the number of times each person is mentioned, in a future issue of the magazine, and reveal which person in history is top of the history chart for 2015. To cast your vote, visit historyextra.com. Thanks, Emma. For our second interview this week, we're heading to Stratford-upon-Avon, best known, of course, for William Shakespeare. Our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman, paid a visit to his birthplace in the company of historian Paul Edmondson to find out more about the playwright's life. We're in the exhibition at the Shakespeare Centre. Yes. Um, and we're going to have a little look round at some of the pieces that you've got on display here. We are, and I'm um, just looking at a, a quotation from The Tempest, which says, I long to hear the story of your life, The Tempest Act 5, Scene 1. And so it's a great opportunity to think about the uh, historical remains of Shakespeare, how we present them today, and to use those as occasions to open up his life and to talk about his impact on, on English drama. Mm. Yeah. So here we have a bundle of deeds. These four property deeds show how the birthplace, as we present it, came into ownership from the Shakespeare family. Um, these are dated between 1575 and, and 1647. So John Shakespeare, Shakespeare's father, acquires the site and at least one of the houses. He then buys the following at the houses adjoining it over the years. Yeah. And Shakespeare inherits the lot in 1601. Um, and then we can trace the ownership yeah. from, from there on. His sister lives in part of the house from around 1601, um, and descendants of Shakespeare's sister were still living in part of what is now the birthplace until the early part of the 19th century. Really? Yeah, it's a fascinating wow. fact. Um, a horn book, this dates from 1680, you know, beyond Shakespeare's lifetime, but something very similar was used yeah. by young children learning the alphabet, learning the Lord's Prayer, having these 
key cornerstones drilled into them from petty school from the age of about five, six, seven, and then through into grammar school, um, eight, nine, ten, right. well, maybe nine, ten, eleven. We don't know how long they stayed at grammar school. It, it was it was a, a combination of people left grammar school at different ages. Right, but okay. they could stay there as long as they were like 16, 17. And Shakespeare went to, to the Stratford Grammar School. Yeah, the Stratford Grammar School was um, founded under Edward VI in 1553. Um, it was free to all boys of the town. There was no special pleading. If you were living in Stratford, you were able to have a free okay. education. I suppose if your parents could afford to release you to have the free education mm. rather than if you had to do any work at home yeah. or in their own trades... Um, or maybe it was you, you could have a sort of mixed economy. Yeah. Um, but it was a highly disciplined environment, and um, Shakespeare there had Latin and Greek drilled into him, the Greek through the study of the New Testament, mm-hmm. and Latin through the study of, of classical literature, Plautus, Cicero, um, you know, the great writers of yeah. antiquity, which, of course, were re- rediscovered during the... Um, 16th century and just before uh, with the arrival of humanism from from Europe through Erasmus in the 15th century making its way across the continent so there's a sense in which you know Shakespeare was being brought up with a European education and that's really worth remembering that we think of it as English but actually it was European and it's the influences of the let's say the Italian writers that are making the most effect on his young mind through Latin through through classical Rome and we see that in his in his works yeah, we see it writ large in his works, mm. not least through the rhetorical figures. It, it wasn't called grammar school for nothing because it mm-hmm. taught how the language was put together, how you could shape language for powerful effects. Um, and that's exactly what he's learning, how language can be used, can be wielded. So, I mean, I look now at what, how, we, how we present education and how we educate children. And, you know, we're not teaching them how to be rhetorical thinkers, really. No. Because what you do by, by, by producing rhetorical figures, you're creating politicians, you're creating writers, you're creating people who can wield words in a way which actually in the end might be dangerous and, and powerful mm. and, and undercut authority. Yeah. Uh, teaching people always to win the debate is the kinds of minds that are being shaped by the grammar school education. This is the book. This, this, this book here is an early edition of the Roman writer Ovid's Book of Metamorphosis, which is one of the shaping influences of Shakespeare's imagination. He loved these stories of transformation, um, and he often refers to Ovid through the plays. For example, in A Midsummer Night's Dream, the story of Pyramus and Thisbe, which ends the play, um, comes from Ovid's Metamorphosis. Oh, okay. The story of Venus and Adonis, Shakespeare's first narrative poem, comes from Ovid's Metamorphosis. Mm. And it just is a really good example of how he's thinking and what he thinks great poetry is. Mm. Even as late as The Tempest, you have um, an allusions to Ovid in, Ch- in Prospero's great speeches, for example. So this is where... Um, and it's a kind of foundational text for Shakespeare, yeah. this kind of poetry... So in this case are some examples of our visitors' books. These date, the earliest visitors' book for, the Shakespeare, for Shakespeare's birthplace dates from 1812. Okay. Um, which is not here. Um, but uh, 1812, the visitors' book includes a signature of uh, the poet John Keats, for example, wow. who came on the 3rd of October, 1817. And as visitors are still invited to do, Keats was asked for his place of abode or address. Yeah. And against his name, he just writes everywhere. So he sort of inspired pil- pilgrimages to his birthplace quite early on then, really. Yeah, well, people started visiting the birthplace into the early 18th century, yeah. really, um, and, and onwards. Um, and it becomes more and more a destination for yeah. people to, to think about Shakespeare, to find out more about his life, mm. his work. And the person, I suppose, yes, as well. Yes, and to see the birthplace as a major part of the jigsaw puzzle which connects Shakespeare to the town at large. Yeah. And, and quite often you'll have people visiting Shakespeare's birthplace and then visiting the grave in Holy Trinity Church, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, here's a, a good memory of town in Shakespeare's time. This is the base of the Market Cross. Okay. So John Shakespeare, Shakespeare's dad, is making gloves he's making he's a worker in white leather and he sells those 
objects from the window of his house. It's a cottage industry, literally, mm. but also on market days at the base of the Market Cross okay. at the top of Henley Street where it meets um, Bridge Street and High Street, a real kind of centre of mm. the town. And so you can just imagine the many hundreds of thousands of people over the centuries who have gathered around this object in the centre of Stratford and sold their wares mm. and um, exchanged gossip and news and, and met their friends. It's a focal point, wasn't a it? A real focal mm. point at the centre of the community. I suppose you had the market cross and you had the church yeah. um, and then the guild hall yeah. at the centre of, of, of the town community. And this is, this is one of the three. Wow. Was he a successful businessman, uh, Shakespeare's father? There are two views about how successful John Shakespeare was. The traditional view is that he started off successful and then gradually went into decline and lost money and therefore had to um, sell land and his investments in order to, mm. to survive. He became mayor of Stratford, the bail- bailiff, as it was called, of Stratford-upon-Avon, and served on the town council in, in various offices. And then he stopped going to council meetings for about a decade when they eventually sort of signed off. The other view is that um, he goes quiet on the town council because he's more interested in his his business affairs after having sort of made it as bailiff Mm. and that as well as making gloves and working in white leather, he's investing significantly in wool, which was illegal at the time and you sort of had to... He was fined uh, for dealing in wool. Uh, But the... The kind of revisionist view is that he went on dealing in wool and that was where his business interests lay and remained wealthy because of it. That's why, why he stayed quiet, perhaps. That's why he's so <laughs> quiet. It, it does explain a lot about how Shakespeare was able to afford shares in the Lord Chamberlain's Men, for example, in 1594. OK. And also to be able to buy a new place in 1596 if there was money in the family, if there right, was yeah. cash in yeah. the Henley Street household, yeah. which they, I think there probably was. Wool was where, you know, it was the, the money was to be yeah. found. It was deeply lucrative. Um, and and we, we just know that that's what John Shakespeare, in part, was doing. Mm. We just don't quite know the extent of it. Right, OK. One of the interesting things with the revisionist view is that Shakespeare starts to go to London not to make his fortune in a Dick Whittington sort of way and joining an acting troupe and to escape uh, uh, his home life, but in fact to represent his father's wool dealing. Oh, right, Because okay. they were, as they were called, broggers yeah. in, in London. And that would make a lot of sense, yeah. Interesting. So two views. Mm. Um, but John Shakespeare's clear about the freeholds and the investments he's holding on to. Mm. So I don't read desperation writ large in what he's selling. No. So no. the interpretation of why he's selling the stuff is to reinvest in wool. Is that, is that your is that theory you kind of uh, ascribe no. to? Uh, well, I ascribe to it. I think it's very compelling. Mm. It's, uh, it's being developed by uh, David Fallow of, of Exeter University. So this is a family tree which moves backwards as we walk towards the garden of Shakespeare's birthplace. And I just notice the mention of Shakespeare purchasing New Place, which was a large five-gabled house in the centre of town in 1597. Mm-hmm. It's thought that he paid about £120 for it. That's, that's a huge amount at a time when, you know, an average wage for a school teacher per year was about £20. Oh. So it's a significant yeah. amount of money. So, you know, we do well, I think, to ask where did Shakespeare's money come from? And if what we've just been thinking about John Shakespeare, his father, is true and wool dealing, that is one answer. Mm. Another answer might be private patronage. And there was a rumour that the Earl of Southampton, Henry Risley, gave Shakespeare £1,000 for a purchase that he had a mind to. That, that rumour starts into the middle of the 17th century. Mm. And it's... It's fairly plausible, but the £1,000 is a huge amount of money. Um, But he is buying shares in the Lord Chamberlain's men in 1594 and then able to buy new place in 1597 and supporting his family Mm. at the time. You know, remember Shakespeare's not wealthy because he's writing the plays. He's wealthy because he's writing successful plays for a company in which he owns shares. Yeah, yeah. And the other... um, kind of major formational aspect in Shakespeare's life around this time is the year before when his young son dies. Um, Hamnet Shakespeare, who's a non-identical twin to to Judith, born in 1585, Mm. 
dies age 11 in, in 1596. And it may be a coincidence. I, it's not a coincidence that Shakespeare, a few years later, writes a play called Hamlet, no. which was an alternative spelling of the name in the period. Hamlet Shakespeare um, was named after Shakespeare's good friends, Hamlet and Judith Sadler, who, who lived close to, to, to New Place and are thought to have been godparents yeah. to, to his son. For an Elizabethan to lose a male child is, is deeply significant um, because you're losing your family line, your name, your, your major inheritor. Mm. Um, Anne Shakespeare was well into her 40s by the time Hamlet dies, so they knew they weren't going to have any more male heirs. Sort of cruel irony is that just after Hamlet dies, Shakespeare manages to acquire a coat of arms for his father, to, as it were, to celebrate and mark the ancestry and, and the future-looking part of the Shakespeare name. Mm. And of course, there's no male heir to inherit the, the, the coat of arms. Do we know how his son died? Uh, we don't. No, we don't. Uh, it, it might have been typhus fever, mm. um, could have been uh, a plague. We, yeah. we don't know. Inside Shakespeare's birthplace is a really good place to be reminded of, of how he grew up mm. and the effects of his family upbringing on his young imagination. And one of the things that people did, because what else could you do on an evening, was to tell each other stories around the hearth. And if we imagine the kinds of stories that Shakespeare's hearing, they would have been you know, long-established oral folk tales of you know, Robin Hood and, and the great medieval stories, uh, tales of Prince, Prince Arthur, King Arthur, and, and so on, mm. and that, that are being passed on as, as these stories were. Um, we know that Shakespeare had these stories told to him because later in his writing career, they crop up in a very sort of embedded and incidental way, as if right, they're okay. very much from a, a mm. you know young a young memory, tales of Bevis of, of Southampton and, um, and 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 Robin Hood and so on uh, are very much part of what's forming him. So, um, households of this kind uh, did did have um, some some books. The Canterbury Tales would have been mm -hmm. an, another important influence. Also, to remind ourselves of the fact that. The Canterbury Tales, for example, was still in print in Shakespeare's time. New editions of it were appearing all the time. It's still really, really popular. Mm. So, you know, in, in, our, in our minds, we, we need to remember that it, we may think of it as the early modern period or the Renaissance period, but the, the back door is still wide open on the medieval imagination, yeah. which is still passing through freely. Uh, and, of course, with that medieval imagination um, is, is what is, is often called the old faith, uh, a sense of... You know what became known as Roman Catholicism, but but the old faith mm -hmm. at a time when the con the country is going through a great renewal of how it's approaching the relationship between um, God and state and 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 God and, uh, and and citizens, yeah, subjects. And the the way these rooms is this um, obviously it's not the the furniture that would have been here, but is it of that period? Yeah, the the furniture <coughs> we're looking at the the dark dark coloured mm. furniture is of the period, so the old. Um, chest at the back will be 16th century yeah and these benches anything paler is is modern reproduction but all of what we're looking at is, is of the period and it's a lot lighter in here than i thought it would be I mean, would there being at least would there have been glass in the windows and things like that yes they would yes, have had glass yes, they would have done and, and shutters of course <clears throat> yeah um the, the the main parlor here is is where the family at its midday meal mm -hmm. any time from half past 11 shakespeare would have come back from school to to have that that main meal, and then you ate lightly in the evening. Okay. Um, and it was, you know, curfew time, and you had to sort of stay in from about eight o'clock. One of the spanners that is thrown into the works for Shakespeare's life is that he marries much too young mm. uh, because he has to, um, because Anne, Hath Anne Hathaway is already pregnant before they get married, which means that he wasn't able to be an apprentice. You couldn't okay. be married and be an apprentice. Oh right, okay. So, so that that's that's actually quite a major point because mm. it 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 means that any hopes that he had of legally, officially be taking on the trade of widower or glove maker, which was you know a proper trade, mm. he couldn't do, um, which was a, really a blight to his fortunes in in some ways. 
Um, so that, that that doesn't mean to say that he wasn't helping out here and and you know working in the family business, mm. but he would never be you know fully apprenticed and uh, have so that trade status. Oh, As, okay. So he wouldn't have been recognised as being no. And you see, many many of his fellow actors in the in the Lord Chamber's men and, and the King's men had other professions. Right. Okay. So you know, Hemmings, John Hemmings um, was a grocer, for example, and and started his apprenticeship at the age of twelve and and was there until twenty one. That that if Shakespeare had started an apprentice, mm. an apprenticeship, which you know he probably did, he couldn't complete it because of having to marry. Right. So that was a major, yeah. you know, life career Definitely, change yeah. at the time. Um, and uh, and the other just point about the theatre company uh, is that because they had tradesmen among the actors and the shareholders, like John Hemmings, mm. Hemmings was able to take on boy apprentices to become as it were legally grocers and learn from another professional grocer but actually what they were being used for were to become boy actors in the company oh, okay. to perform the female roles right. and that's how they got the supply of boy one of the ways yeah. they got the supply of boys okay. was to have them as apprentice to other professional tradesmen in the company and then sense, act yeah. at the same time This is a, a, a wonderful treasure that's over at Charlotte. This is the, known as the birth room window. And from the earliest days, visitors um, carved their initials, engraved their initials oh. with a diamond ring. Uh, and it includes um, signatures of, of Ellen Terry, Thomas Carlyle, Henry, Henry Irving uh, wow. are, are all in this window. Yeah, It used to be through there in the birth room itself. So that's the birth room? Just beyond there. Oh, beyond, OK. But we moved it for conservation purposes, yeah. so he, here it is. A great visual reminder of, yeah. of that sense of you know, wanting literally to make your mark, to engrave it into something. Do you know what the earliest... Oh, there we go, 1806. Yeah. So it predates the first visitor's book by, yeah. by six years. Anyway, a song from uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Or Titania's Love. You spotted snakes with double tongue. Thorny hedgehogs be not seen, newts and blind worms do no wrong. Come not near our fairy queen, fill a man with melody, singing our sweet lullaby. Lula, lula, lullaby, lula, lullaby. Never harm nor spell nor charm, come our lovely lady, die. Lula, lula, lullaby, lula, lullaby. One of the most exciting things about this room in terms of theatre and drama are, you know, the number of, of great people who have passed through it, because this, mm. is, this is really, as it were, the, the climax of the visit. And before the house was fully opened, you know, from the late, from the middle 18th century onwards, this was the room that you, you, you came to. So um, David Garrick spent the night here. Oh, right, OK. Of, of the, the, the night before the Jubilee started, for example, hung a banner out of the window. <laughs> um, you know, great writers, states people, artists, have, have walked through this room mm. with that sense of bringing their own Shakespeare to this space. And there are many accounts, and our good colleague Luke will have many of them, of visitors from around the world who have stood here and oh, yes. wept, who Pray have, have yes, spoken yes, about really? Shakespeare oh, yes, in their own yes, cultures. Yes. So however you decide to present this space, it's what people are bringing yeah. to it which is as important as to what they actually might find in terms of objects. Yeah. And that picture um, of Shakespeare's, the room which Shakespeare was born from 1853, um, I've just read the caption, it's an important um, reminder of how, you know, the, the walls were covered in signatures. Um, if you go to Juliet's balcony in Verona, you'll see the walls leading up to it covered yes, in graffiti. I've, yes, I've seen that, and, yeah. And that similar kind of expression mm. was something that, you know, generations of visitors were able to to take part in yeah. uh, when, they, when they visited this space. But that idea of leaving your own mark alongside Shakespeare's is, is, is a very um, understandable, very widespread cultural response to spaces connected with, with great people. That was Charlotte Hodgman in the company of Dr Paul Edmondson, Head of Research and Knowledge at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. Paul's book, simply titled Shakespeare will be available in April, published by Profile Books. And you can read more about Shakespeare in the March issue of BBC History magazine, 
which as I mentioned earlier is out now. And just before we go, here's a message we received from a listener to the email address podcast at historyextra.com. Nino writes, I would like to thank you for the excellent episode on Mein Kampf and Stalin. Once again, your podcasts fill the gaps of our incomplete historical knowledge. For example, the fact that in India Mein Kampf is easy to find and that Hitler is seen as a struggling common man's success story is just baffling and proves just how many varying perspectives a certain event in history might generate and how difficult it is to reverse or change people's perceptions even after the passage of time. I would also like to thank you for giving Mr Kotkin ample time to talk about his Stalin biography. I have never imagined that a scholar might one day credit Stalin for being a better strategist than Trotsky, and I enjoyed how Mr Kotkin listed the little things that Stalin would not do that ensured he would succeed Lenin as a result. Well, thank you for your comments, Nino. And if anyone's missed that episode, you can download it still from all the usual places. It was first broadcast on the 1st of January this year. And well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we're going to be talking about the history of food, among other things. And in the meantime, please do take a chance to vote in our poll at historyextra.com forward slash history hot 100. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.